Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Uh, welcome, everyone, to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Uh, if this is your first time, raise your hand. Okay, look at that. Quite a few people. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, so this is uh, the second Sunday in our new series, Love in Translation. Um, so at the beginning of the year, the Lord gave us uh, this vision for where we wanted to go this year, uh, telling God's story with everything that we are. Uh, we kind of began the year um, just by examining, well, who exactly are we and how have we been crafted to tell this story? Uh, we, so we talked through our church values, and then we're entering into this new series to say, okay, so how do we tell the story? How do we recognize who we've been called to be, how God has crafted us, and how he's sending us back out? And so we're kind of using this love in translation as the way to say that, that we are called to translate God's love to the world around us in this day, in this place. It's not an accident that any of us have been called and crafted and equipped uh, for this very moment. So last week when we began the series, uh, I wanted to talk about kind of the why. Why do we even, why are we called to this thing? Why do we need to sometimes redeem this understanding of what evangelism is or even outreach? And last week we said, you know, we're called to translate God's love to the world around us in order to bring it all back together. We've been called to this ministry of reconciliation, where it's about uh, bringing relationship between creator and creation within the human family between humans um, and the earth around us. And you know, today is uh, Earth Day, which is pretty neat. And so um, last week I talked about the why. Today I wanna talk a little bit more about the who. Who are you specifically called to reach? So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna launch right into this. And so Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you're with us. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for that foundational truth. Uh, because it's the one that we can't go any farther without acknowledging that you're with us. Not only are you with us, you're for us. You advocate for us. Your Holy Spirit within us is advocating for us. Jesus at your right hand is advocating for us. Everything uh, about who you are is advocating for us to come back into relationship with you. And because of that, to come back into relationship with one another. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you would do whatever you want to do here this evening. Lord, I know that you want to open some of us up to new ways of seeing, of understanding your heart, uh, and being able to come alongside of you in rescuing and redeeming the world. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So recently, uh, there was a research group that went out to see how uh, aware uh, are Christians, the average churchgoer today, of this thing called the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. And needless to say, the results were not exactly where we would want them to be uh, for such a big idea within Christianity. So I just figured we'd start talking about the Great Commission, and I think that God has actually given us this really beautiful path that's very sensitive to where each one of us are in our spiritual journeys that helps us to understand how we're called uh, to, to walk out that Great Commission. So we're going to begin uh, by looking at Matthew chapter 28. This is the passage that's uh, most well defined as the Great Commission. So uh, Jesus has died. He has resurrected. He spent some time ministering to his disciples, revealing himself uh, to other people, continuing to teach, performing signs and wonders. 
And now he's getting ready uh, for the ascent to kind of go back to heaven, to sit at the right hand of the Father, and to continue to advocate for us. So these are kind of his final instructions to his disciples. And, and I like, we're going to be looking at how Matthew phrases it and then how Luke phrases it in Acts. And this is what Matthew says. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And there it is, even right there, that the way that Matthew wants to tell the story is to frame it that Jesus is defined by God with us. It's the prophecy that's spoken over Mary before Jesus is even born. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And even in this, this scene where it seems like Jesus is leaving, he says, I'm, I'm going to be with you always. And many writers have correctly pulled up, I think, that the fact that it was necessary for Jesus to leave in the body so that his spirit could remain with us and to continue to advocate for us, to compel us uh, towards love, to become more outwardly focused and other-centered where we begin to step out into the world preaching the good news, telling the story in a way that it draws all people back in uh, to God's reality. And so uh, Jesus walks with us in that ability to go to the ends of the earth. I think it's so important that we're there to recognize that. We're not alone in this. I think a lot of times we have um, a lack of confidence sometimes when it comes to our part to play. I think this is why we often reduce the idea that there's a select group of people and they're called evangelists and they're the ones that are gifted and called and have read all the right books and have done all the right Bible studies or whatever it is to be able to go out. But I think when we recognize that it's the spirit of God working within us that compels all of us to that common call to make disciples, it opens it up for all of God's people uh, to participate. Now, Luke, he decides to give slightly different words uh, to how uh, Jesus is giving this final commission. And Luke's uh, commissioning comes in Acts chapter 1. Uh, Luke wrote uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts as kind of the continuation on of the story. And he says it here, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I love the way that Luke decides to phrase that with Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's what we're going to be using today to talk about how God walks us deeper into um, not only our understanding of who we're called to reach, um, but in a way that we grow spiritually as well as we step into that. And so I want you to hold on to that idea of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we're actually going to jump back in the story of Jesus to an earlier moment that I think really shows how God is crafting us alongside that journey. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10 today. In Matthew's gospel, uh, there are five major sermons or discourses by Jesus. The first is a sermon on the mount. That's kind of where he begins his ministry. And this is the second one. It's often called uh, the apostolic discourse. And what we're going to see here is this transition for those that have been following him from being disciples to being apostles. So a couple chapters prior, maybe this is a year or two before this point in the story, Jesus has called together this ragtag group of young men to follow him, to learn from him, and to observe. And so for most of the story, they haven't really played a major part in it. They're kind of watching what Jesus does. They're listening to what he says. Maybe they're asking him questions. They're trying to figure out who exactly is this Jesus that claims to be our Messiah, that claims to be our deliverer. And this is kind of the pivotal moment in their story where they're making 
making this transition from disciples uh, to being apostles. And so just kind of listen for that as we're reading uh, verses 1 through 8. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And even here, uh, Matthew's giving us these little hints that this is not exactly the pick of the litter. We've got a tax collector, we've got um, a couple political revolutionaries, uh, we've got a Zebedee, you know, which is a really popular baby name, I'm sure, in the first century. But we've got this really random group of people. And, and one of the major things that we like to recognize about the disciples is these are the guys that were overlooked. These are the guys that when it came time to go to rabbi school, they didn't make the cut. And so when Jesus came and called them, he's saying, no, no, you actually have worth and value, and I can do something with that. And I think that's really important for us to recognize. Sometimes we feel like we're not good enough or we're overlooked or God's going to pick somebody that's obviously more equipped than we are to go out and to tell the story. But it's actually Jesus coming before us and saying, no, you're, I can work with this. You're enough. You've got it together. We can make this happen. And it's so interesting here because it begins, Matthew begins by saying Jesus called his 12 disciples and now he calls them the 12 apostles. And that's what we're going to focus on moving on. So in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And I think it's that final phrase that so beautifully sums up the difference between being a disciple and being an apostle. Because up until now, the disciples have been freely receiving. They've been watching. They've been listening. They've been learning. They've been receiving all this truth from Jesus. And now has come the point in their story where Jesus says, you've received enough. You've heard enough. You've seen enough. Now I want you to give. And I think that is such a key understanding for all of us in the difference between being a disciple and, the, and being an apostle. Because there's a certain kind of understanding of God that can only come through our active participation in his kingdom. There's a certain amount of growth for you that can only come when you begin to actively participate in the kingdom. Not just watching and observing and listening and asking questions, but when you step up to speak, to do to go wherever Jesus leads you. Because I think when we only see ourselves as disciples, it actually just, it, it stunts our spiritual growth. When we think that the whole thing is just about us receiving, before long we stop being receivers and we start being takers. And it only becomes about what we can get from God. It only comes about what we can get from church. And before long, we find that our capacity is filled up because all of that energy, all of that divine energy, that truth that we've received, it kind of gets stopped up within us because we're these limited vessels. And if we only ever see ourselves as disciples in that way, we can't really grow. And we have to recognize that the next step in our maturity is to step into the apostolic vocation as well. And it's important to recognize, you will always be a disciple. There's always more for you to receive from God. That never goes away. But at some point in your journey, and you may not even feel like you're ready for it yet, 
but that's where grace comes in. You begin to lay over top of that the apostolic invitation as well. Yes, freely you've received, but now it's time for you to begin to freely give. I like to think of it almost like we're this vessel holding uh, this precious liquid that, that comes down from heaven, but when it just sits there, what happens to water when it just sits still and it doesn't go anywhere? It begins to stagnate, it becomes septic. It's not really good for anything. It's only when that water is allowed to flow through the vessel that there's this continuing uh, flow of God's love and it's always fresh. And in fact, the, the vessel itself is able to increase in its capacity and it's able to expand to receive more and more. Oh my gosh. I almost sound <laughs> brief aside. So the first church I worked at was, uh, came out of the Vineyard Movement, which came out of the Jesus Movement in the 1970s. I should even tell this. The pastor there, he'd be praying and he'd say, and Lord, I just want you to pour out your liquid hot love all over him. And we were like, Okay. That's how they spoke in the 70s, we'll receive it. But, but it's, there's something that's true about that. We receive God's love, and if we don't do anything with it, it just kind of sits there, and it stagnates, and we wonder why we're not growing, and we wonder why we're kind of feeling distant from God. There comes this point that we have to start allowing it to flow through us. Several years ago, I took a, a team uh, on mission to Houston, and we were working with various ministries in the inner city. And there was this, uh, this one afternoon that we, had, we were serving a meal to, to homeless folks in the park, and we were having a church service and just spending time with them. And one of my students was kind of off in this field with these three little kids, playing with them all afternoon, and just kind of let him, let him do his thing. And that night, uh, we're debriefing um, back at the place we're staying, and he breaks down in tears when he begins to, to share about his day. And he said, I never knew there were homeless children in this country. He said, I never knew there were homeless kids in the United States. And I think a lot of times when we only see ourselves as receivers, as takers, we end up in this little bubble, we end up in this echo chamber where we don't have to actually acknowledge the rest of the world. And we can maintain this illusion that everything's fine. But it's only when we begin to step outside of our comfort zones and see the world the way that God does, we recognize the reality of the world around us. And I think what happened to him in that moment is like that vessel, he was broken open by the reality of the world in the same way that Jesus was broken open, in the same way that his disciples time and again as they were being faithful to tell the story were being broken open. But when you're broken open, it does not the same thing as being broken apart. You're broken open so that you can increase your capacity to love. I remember a friend of mine, he was getting ready to have, uh, they were having their second child and he was so terrified because he's like, I love my wife so much and I love my firstborn so much. I, I'm worried that there's not enough of me to love this new kid. And I think that's very real if we see the vessel that we are is always going to be the same size. And we recognize that it's actually love that breaks us open and increases the size of our vessel, increases our capacity to love, that we're actually able to continue the journey of maturity. And as you progress in your spiritual journey, who you are called and equipped to love will expand. As you continue down that journey, as you recognize that moment when Jesus is calling you from just being a disciple to also becoming an apostle, you're going to see that who you're called to equip to love will expand, it will continue to grow. And I love this story because I think Jesus is very sensitive to our spiritual growth. He's very sensitive to where you are at in your journey with him today. And Jesus knows what the goal of maturity is. 
And it's that line from Acts 1 that you're able to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. There's no limit to where you can go and to love people authentically. But Jesus knows that in order to get you there, he needs to be more sensitive to where you're at in your journey right now. So we're going to do a deep reading of kind of these three categories, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And um, when you came in, there was actually a clipboard on your chair. Um, I want you to pull that out. And we're going to have a couple moments of reflection just for you uh, to dialogue with the Holy Spirit and invite him to reveal some things to you about each of these categories. And so the first in this story, um, Jesus says, don't go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So the first place that Jesus says, go out and begin to give is Israel, is Judea. And how do we define that for us? Your first calling is to us those who have the same story as you. What Jesus is saying is, don't worry about the Samaritans, don't worry about Gentiles, go to the people that are just like you. They talk like you, they walk like you, they have all the same customs that you do. That is going to be your first calling. There's a special authority in being able to come alongside of somebody and to be able to say, me too. To be able to say, your story is also my story. This is what we call empathy when we're able to see, and it's the heart of compassion within us that, that brings us alongside of someone else because we see in them our story in some way. And it might be literally your culture. Your Judea might be people that speak the common language, people that are of the same class, people that are of the same race, but I actually want us to go a little bit deeper than some of those things today, getting a little bit more specific. Because the more specific you're able to understand who your personal Judea is, the greater authority you will have when you begin to tell the story. And so uh, a few weeks ago in our Values series, when we were talking about purpose, I, I briefly mentioned this idea uh, about you know, recognizing the story of the prodigal son is, I was once dead, but now I'm alive. And that very simple transition to say, who was I when God first met me? What was my story? What was the dominant theme? And what was the specific spirit in which God met me that now brought me to the place I am here? And like I said, that might be a very big, broad thing. It might be race, it might be gender, it might be socioeconomic status, whatever it might be, but I think it can actually get more personal. Maybe your life was marked by rejection, and that was, that was the dominant theme before you really met the Lord, was rejection, friends, family, school, whatever it might be. And the specific spirit that God met you with was a spirit of acceptance, you see, because God's salvation is not this one-size-fits-all, you pray the sinner's prayer and all of a sudden you're part of the club. Something has to actually take place in a real and tangible way in your story. This is why even, you know, we're going to be doing this Enneagram event in a couple weeks. This is why I find that so helpful to gain the language to understand what are the basic motivations in my life that kind of dictate how I act and how I choose to be in the world. And the more that I can understand those motivations, the more I can begin to see the fingerprint of God at work in my story. And that actually allows me to turn around to see other people within my community and beyond that are living out that same story. And I can actually come alongside of them and say, me too, but I also want to tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. And several weeks ago, like I said, when I, when I preached on this, first someone emailed me later on and said, well, uh, Ryan, I'm not sure who my first calling, who my Judea is. 
I grew up in the church. My dad is a pastor. Um, I never knew a time without God. I really love Jesus. I love being part of the church. I just don't really have that powerful conversion experience. And I think a lot of us wish we did, you know, where we were like, you know, in a bike gang and we were like murdering people. And then we had our road to Damascus move. And then all of a sudden we're just perfect. You know, we'd all love that story. And it was so ironic. This person was writing to me with that kind of story because that's also my story. And so I responded, I said, actually, I think your Judea and my Judea are very similar. I grew up in the church. I didn't know a time without God, you know? But I got to this point where I wondered, is there something more? I got to this point in my own spiritual journey where the words of the Bible were so familiar that I didn't even know what they meant anymore. I got to this point where I was just singing the same songs over and over again and wondering, what the heck am I saying? I got to this point in college where that first Sunday, being away from my family, I woke up and go, oh my goodness, I don't have to go to church if I don't want to. And thinking that's freedom. You know, I went through all of that. Like I had all, I grew up with all this stuff. It was all there. But coming to this place of saying, there's gotta be something more than what I've experienced. And I recognize that's my personal Judea. Those are the people that I have this special authority when I hear their stories to come alongside of them to say, you know what, me too. I know exactly how that feels. I know exactly what that's like. But let, let me tell you about what God has done in my life, even in that story. And I think this is our first calling because it, right there, it's very easy for us to see ourselves in someone's story and to use that as an invitation in the beginning. And I think that's what God is inviting us to do, is to recognize within ourselves, by ministering to somebody else that's right there alongside of us, we begin to understand the reality of his grace. We begin to articulate his love in a way that's just quite easy for us because we speak and act and do the same thing. And so we're gonna just take a moment, I'm gonna pray, and then I just want you to dialogue with Holy Spirit, as I said, around this question, who's in my personal Judea? who has the same story as me. Uh, and so Holy Spirit, would you uh, alight upon each of your dear ones here? Just open us up and, 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 and show us who are those people, who is us? The people that are just like us, that have that same story, but in it we have this really special authority uh, to speak uh, and, to, and to reveal your love. Feel free to continue writing if the Lord's giving you more there. But of course, you can take this uh, home with you and continue uh, that dialogue. So Judea are, are the people that are just like you. Judea is your us. And it's easy for you to see yourself in someone else's shoes when you're in Judea. But eventually, there comes a point when Jesus is going to invite you or probably more likely push you into your own personal Samaria. And so how do we understand what Samaria is? Your second calling is to them, those who are personally difficult for you to tolerate. You're them. When they walk in the room, oh, you feel it in that deep place in your gut. 
These are the people that are just, they're just personally offensive to you. And I think for us to understand our personal Samaria, it's important to get a historical background to what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about Samaritans, because this actually pops up several times in the New Testament. And so um, the, in, the, in the Old Testament sto- story, um, one of many empires comes through and just ravishes Judea called the Assyrians, and they capture a bunch of people and they take them into slavery up in Assyria, and eventually the Assyrians are, can- uh, are controlled by the Babylonians. And at some point, the Babylonians release the Jews to come back to Judea to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. This is the story of uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. But not all the Jews were taken into exile by the Assyrians. There was uh, certain groups that were kind of left in the land. And what these people started to do uh, was that they intermarried with all of the other tribes, the Canaanites and the Stalactites and the Stalagmites and all of the ites that were left over in Judea. And so um, there's this great exodus, like everybody comes back and Ezra the priest is standing there and he's seeing what's happened to his people that were left behind. And they're completely directionless. They have a passing acquaintance with the Torah, the law. They kind of know Yahweh, but they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so Ezra begins, what we find in the story of Judea is a revival. He begins to preach again about the Torah and about God and his heart and kind of calling them into repentance, calling them back home. And one of the things that Ezra mandates is any of you who have intermarried with these other tribes, you need to send those people away, that we need to purify our people, our tribe, in order to be authentic and faithful to who God's calling us to be. And so these people are kind of pushed out of Israel, out of Judea, because they're not purebred uh, Judeans, and they kind of settle in this other area, and they become uh, what is known in Jesus' time as the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans were particularly offensive to, uh, to Israel in Jesus' time because they kind of know Yahweh, and they kind of know the Torah, and they do worship him, but they do everything wrong. They're kind of these half-breeds. They, they, they have all the information, but they're not really doing it right. And so it causes this deep offense from anybody in Judea when they encounter a Samaritan. That's why it's often so offensive when these people pop up into the stories. And I think that speaks so powerfully to who our Samaria is. We're most personally offended by people who are similar to us, but don't quite fit the mold. Your personal Samaria, these are the people that you talk about them over there. Okay? Your Samaritans, these are other tribes, other people, and they don't do it right. And you often become very prescriptive with Samaria. They should really do it more like this. If they were really serious, they'd behave better like that. And what you're really saying is, if they would just do it like us, then maybe they'd be more welcome in the kingdom. If they would maybe just behave themselves, if they get rid of all of their their ignorance and their stupidity and their rules and their regulations and take on our rules and our regulations, then maybe, just maybe, they'd be more favorable to God. And I think this is so often where we have a breakdown in our understanding of evangelism because what we're not actually doing is telling the story of God in a way that it redeems other people's stories. We're trying to get other people to walk our stories and live in our tribe and behave according to our rules and we're all doing it in the name of evangelism, which is not the same thing. And I think when Jesus kind of nudges us into our personal Samaria, 
He's inviting us to see beyond our own ego that needs to connect on some surface level to consider somebody else worthy of love. You know, I used to think that I had to have some sort of a commonality with people in order to be invested in their lives. If I could find myself in their story, then there'd be a deep connection. The problem was I began to encounter all these other stories in other people's lives that I couldn't connect to. And I'm kind of entering into this crisis and saying, am I not capable of loving this person because I can't see themselves in, or can't see myself in their shoes? And I think this is the point that what we call empathy actually becomes selfish because it's no longer compassionate. When we're raised that we have this obsession to be able to say to somebody, I know how you feel. And when that, that move of empathy actually becomes more about us needing to feel connected to somebody than it does about us being able to love others well. I remember a couple years after uh, the Pulse shooting just down the road, some people kind of processing on social media that it was more about their experience of the thing, but at the expense of those who had been directly affected. And it was very difficult to watch and listen, people saying, oh my goodness, I drive down that street all the time. And it, you know, and it was just all about me, 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 and how painful this was for me. And it was a complete lack of sensitivity to the community, to those that had been directly affected. And sometimes we can become so obsessed with needing to find ourselves in other people's stories that we actually devalue other people. We devalue their stories. And so if there's a special authority in Judea to be able to come alongside of somebody and say, I actually know how you feel. I think there's another special authority that you carry in being able to come alongside of somebody and to say, I have no idea how you feel. I have no idea what that must be like, but I'm still choosing to be present with you in that without needing to understand, without needing it to validate my ego. See, the key it's not trying to make somebody more palatable to your story, to your tribe, to your way of doing things, but it's actually to see how the kingdom of God might anoint and redeem their story, their tribe, their way of doing things. And that's the only way that you're gonna to begin to see how big the story of God actually is. When it's not about importing someone into your narrative, but about stepping into someone else's and saying, God, what can you do here? How can you speak life to these people in this situation, in this scenario? And so we learn so much about the character of God within Judea because it's meeting our own personal story. But when we step into Samaria, we're kind of a fish out of water and we say, God, I need to experience the reality of who you are all over again in a new way. And it actually expands our understanding of who God is. And so last week, um, I talked about um, you know, the absolutely wonderful monk from the 1950s and 60s, Thomas Merton. I want to talk to you about another old dead Catholic who I am absolutely adore. This is uh, Mother Teresa. Many of you would be familiar with her. Mother Teresa was born in Macedonia in 1910 uh, to a family, uh, to a Catholic family of Albanians. And as is a very high calling within the Catholic tradition, she became a nun at the age of 18, and she moved from Macedonia uh, to Ireland to learn English, and eventually they kind of put her um, uh, teaching at some schools in Calcutta, India, and that was her calling, that was her vocation for several years, that she was attending to people in these schools, that she was teaching English and whatnot, um, but she began to engage with the culture outside of the school, outside of the convent, outside of her little Catholic bubble. 
And what she was encountering there were the poorest of the poor. She was encountering absolute destitution and poverty and suffering and disease and death. And in her own writings, this is when Mother Teresa speaks of how she received the call within the call to take that next step, to go beyond her familiar world of Catholicism and to step into somebody else's world. And over 10 years, uh, she began to establish um, this convent in Calcutta that specifically ministered to the poorest of the poor, whether it was through a children's hospital or it was uh, taking care of the, uh, of the sick and the dying and the old and the poor. And one of my favorite stories is that there was a Time Magazine reporter flew out to India to, to meet her, to engage with her ministry and to ask her questions. And this reporter kind of watched her over the course of a day hold this little 10-year-old boy in her arms for hours, just speaking to him and praying over him and holding him and loving him until eventually this little boy died in her arms. And that night, they're talking about it, and the reporter says, I, I don't understand. How can you do this? It just seems like a lost cause. Like these people are dying. They have nothing. They're not going to get out of these situations. Yet you spend so much time and energy holding a sick, dying child in his final moments of life. How can you do it? And she says, I can't help myself. I can't help myself because every child that I meet is a beautiful disguise for the face of Christ. And this is what happens to us when we leave behind Judea and we step into Samaria, when we engage with the people that are not very like us, maybe even the people that are actually quite offensive to us because they don't do it, quote unquote, the right way. They don't do it the way that we think that it should. But if we walk into Samaria open-handed, willing to be surprised by what God does there, we begin to understand his love in a dramatically new and more powerful way than we possibly could if we just stayed at home. So we're gonna take another moment just to dialogue with the Holy Spirit and ask this question. Who is in my personal Samaria? Who is difficult for me to love? Who's that group of people that I call them? Who are the people when they walk in the room it just does something to me. I resent them. I'm offended by them. Let's take a moment and prayerfully consider. you can continue to write as we move on. And so we, our first calling is to Judea, those people that are just like us, 
Our second calling is to Samaria. That's them over there, these people that are personally offensive to us because they're kind of similar. They're in our space, but they're not doing it correctly. And that brings us uh, to the final category, the invitation from Jesus, which is ends of the earth. There will be no end to the kinds of people you see through the lens of love. If Samaria are the people that are personally offensive to us because they're a little too similar, they kind of hit a nerve because they're too close to us, then the ends of the earth are the people that we don't consider at all. We don't even notice the ends of the earth. We're not offended by them, we just dismiss them altogether because we don't allow them to be part of our worldview. And I think whatever it is that the Lord does to us in Samaria where we begin to let go of our ego and our understanding of who's in and out, who's right and wrong, who's worthy and unworthy, we're ready to begin to step out into the ends of the earth. And what this is, it's an invitation for you to step outside of your echo chamber. It's an invitation for you to step outside of maybe even your ego chamber, to become less protective, to become less willfully ignorant and begin to see where God's love might actually carry you. As we looked in that passage uh, from 2 Corinthians last week, Paul gives this excuse. He says, it's Christ's love that compels us. He says, Christ's love that's the fuel in our engine that takes us places. It's Christ's love that has us say, I can't help myself. For Paul to say, whether it's going to Athens, the center of the Greek world, whether it's going to Rome and being in the shadow of the emperor, whether it's going to Philippi, this little tiny military outpost in the middle of nowhere, I can't help myself because Christ's love compels me. What we begin to realize when we're actually compelled by the love of Christ is that all of these these walls that we've built around our tribes, around our way of doing things and being in the world, all steadily begin to crumble. The more you are faithful to love authentically where Jesus calls you, the fewer dividing walls of hostility can stand between us. I love that phrase, dividing walls of hostility. Paul uses it in Ephesians, and he talks about this is the major work of Jesus in actually bringing peace to the earth, is to identify all of these dividing walls of hostility that human beings have erected between themselves, whether they're walls of hostility based on race or socioeconomic status, whether it's about your gender, whether it's about your age, whatever it is, there's these walls of hostility that we have all built in order to protect ourselves, to retain our tribalistic notions, and Christ's specifically came to smash all of those things. And he does that through us. It's Christ's love that compels us to go to the ends of the earth, to realize all of those boundaries are man-made boundaries. That all of those, those the borders are man-made borders based on fear, not on love. Because when Christ calls us to the ends of the earth, we begin to realize how transcendent the love of God really is because it penetrates our biases. It smashes our egotistical assumptions of who's worthy of God's love. When we begin to see people, not the way that we normally see them as human beings, but we begin to see them through the lens of Christ. And this is the truth. It's only by participating in God's redemption of the world, that we realize that the story is actually for everyone. There's no amount of books that you can read, podcasts you can listen to, worship albums you can play in your car 
that will give you an understanding of God in quite the same way as stepping out and participating in doing, in giving. That is the place where you're going to continue to experience God's love, and you're not ready for it. Let me just go ahead and get that right off the table. You're not ready, but it's not about you being ready. It's about you being willing to participate in grace, that grace is always two or three feet just in front of you, and you're never quite ready to step into it. But when you go out into the world, when you, indeed you go to the ends of the earth, open-handed and open-hearted, willing to see what God's going to do with you in that place, I guarantee you, you will be surprised and delighted by what you are actually capable of. And before long, you will realize that this story is actually for everyone. Nobody is exempt. Nobody gets left behind. Nobody is unworthy. Everybody can be touched by God's love, can be rescued and redeemed into his kingdom. So I want to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to worship. And as we worship, I just want us to invite the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to each one of us about who is our personal Judea and who is our personal Samaria. And as we worship him, to allow him to do some work in us, to shed a little bit of ego, to maybe step a little bit more into his kingdom and to begin to ask the questions about how we might participate where we're at now. So let's pray. Father, I, I just love how sensitive you are to our personal growth. That your call to evangelism is not one size fits all. In fact, you have equipped each one of us in very, very specific ways to go out and to preach the good news, your thought, word, and deed. But Lord, we need to know who you're calling us to. So Heavenly Father, we continue to ask your spirit to speak to us, to reveal to us who is our personal Judea, who is in our Samaria, that we might be the best representation of your love in those places that we can be. And Father, I believe the more that we step into living that out, the more, in fact, we will understand your heart for us, the more clearly we will see your desire for your people, for this earth. So yeah, Lord, continue to speak to us and to move in and through us. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.